Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule, so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. Welcome to True Crime Garage. Wherever you are, whatever you are doing, thanks for listening. I'm your host, Nick, and with me as always, ladies and gentlemen, hands down the illest ventriloquist this side of the Mississippi River, I give you the captain. Should have been a man who has such fat hands he can't fit them up the dummy's ass. It's good to be seen and it's good to see you. Thanks for listening. Thanks for telling a friend. This week, we are very excited to be featuring Black Galaxy IPA by the good folks down at Beacon Brewing Company in beautiful LaGrange, Georgia. Blast off into this interstellar IPA. Don't be fooled by its optical illusion. Beneath the black abyss lies a roast character with pungent tropical fruit and musky citrus garage grade four big bottle caps. And let's give some praise to our friends, who helped us out with this week's beer run. First up, a big cheers to Paula in LaGrange, Georgia. And a big shout to Mitchell in Huntington, West Virginia. Next, a big cheers and Ron Swanson, please and thank you to Jennifer V in Farmers Branch, Texas. And a big we like your jib to Charles B in Fort Worth, Texas. All right, here's a long distance West Coast cheers to Mariah in Long Beach, California. And last but certainly not least, we have a big thank you to Ethan and Carla Morris out in Warrington, Virginia. Everyone we just mentioned, well, they helped us out with this week's beer fund. And for that, we thank you. Yeah, everybody's down with the LBC. Thanks for supporting the show for the BWWRUN beer run. But if you'd like to support the show and get something in return, check out our website, truecrimegarage.com, and click on the store page. There's something for everyone. And that is enough of the business. All right, everybody, gather around, grab a chair, grab a beer. Let's talk some true crime. What I heard was acid is groovy, kill the pigs. And I believe I heard that twice at first. That was the first thing that I remember hearing. But it's very jumbled because that's mixed up with my wife screaming, Jeff, help me. And my daughter screaming. She looks for me. 
acid is groovy, kill the pigs. Acid and rain. Acid and rain. She looks bad. The following is an adaptation from the book American Justice, Great Crimes and Trials by Paul Begg and Martin Fido. Dr. Jeffrey McDonald was an Army captain in the prestigious Green Berets, the crack special teams operation unit of the American Army, trained for particularly hazardous roles. McDonald was a good soldier. He worked hard and graduated from Princeton University. While still a student there, he got married in 1963. Jeffrey completed his medical studies at Northwestern University in 1969. 1969 was the year of Charles Manson and his so-called family's arrest for the horrific murders of Sharon Tate and her house guest, followed by those of Mr. and Mrs. LaBianca. So it was appalling to learn that in February of 1970, the hippies had struck again. Another household had been violated. Another family had been savagely done to death. Their blood, too, had been used for crude graffiti. 1970, the McDonald family of four was living at Fort Bragg, a large military base in North Carolina. The McDonald apartment was located at 544 Castle Drive. Military police provided security. In the early morning hours of Tuesday, February 17th, Jeff McDonald calls the military police. His voice was weak and croaky. His message alarming and imprecise. Help. 544 Castle Drive. Stabbing. 544 Castle Drive. Stabbing. Hurry. Duty police raced to the house on Castle Drive. In the living room, they found signs of a struggle. In the main bedroom, Dr. Jeffrey McDonald and his wife Colette are found lying on the floor. Colette is dead. She was savagely battered and covered with blood. On the wall, the word pig had been scrawled in her blood. The couple's two daughters both lay dead in their bedrooms. The murder weapons were found outside the back door. McDonald was taken to the military hospital. He had a severe stab to the chest, which punctured a lung. His story? The family had gone to bed. He reported, except for him. He stayed up, reading and dozing off in his pajamas on the couch in the sitting room. He awoke to find four hippies in the house, three of them men. The fourth was a woman. Jeffrey struggled with them, but they overpowered him and tied his hands before clubbing him over the head. When he finally came round, the house was cold and silent. The hippies were gone. Jeffrey went upstairs to find bloodstains on the floors and walls. His whole family had been brutally massacred. The military police were working under severe handicaps. Their normal employment does not involve solving serious crimes, let alone the notoriously difficult stranger murders that can give experienced detectives serious problems. The MPs are normally used to breaking up drunken brawls, pursuing enlisted men who have gone AWOL, and perhaps handling the odd case of pilfering. They are usually enclosed barracks too, where guards on the gates mean all entries and exits have been checked and the whole community can be sealed off for immediate investigation in a crisis. But Fort Bragg was an open base. The public had the right to enter and pass through parts of it. 
It was not possible to close everything down at once and hope the hippies would be caught in a trap. This is True Crime Garage. I just screamed, uh, acid is groovy. Kill the pigs, hit him again. And he was crying and said, we did it. He said they didn't mean to kill anybody. They said things just went bad. She looks dead. All right, Captain, we are going to dive right into this week's timeline, and we're going to start with the McDonald family timeline leading up to the day in question, because there is a lot to cover here in our two fantastic episodes here in the garage. In 1943, both Colette Catherine Stevenson and Jeffrey McDonald were born. Colette's father, Edward, passes away in 1954. In 1956... Colette's mother, Mildred, starts dating a man named Freddie Kassab. These will all be major players in this week's case. In 1963, Jeffrey and Colette are married. Jeffrey is still a student at Princeton University at this time. A little backstory here, Captain. They grew up in the same area, went to the same high school. Jeffrey McDonald and Colette Stevenson are Kids that grew up together, went to school together, they dated on and off in high school. In fact, they were a bit of high school sweethearts, Yeah, but there were some time periods where they were not together in a relationship, but they start seeing each other again at college, and while Jeffrey's still in college, they get married in 1963. This is because Colette is already pregnant with Jeffrey's child. So in 1964, their first daughter is born. Her name is Kimberly Catherine McDonald. The McDonald's then move to Chicago, where Jeff starts medical school at Northwestern University. Just three years after their first daughter, in 1967, their second daughter is born. This is Kristen Jean McDonald. Now, 1969, Captain, is going to be a very busy year for Jeffrey and the McDonald family. This is because Jeffrey joins the U.S. Army. So first, Jeff reports to Fort Sam Houston Army Medical in San Antonio for six weeks. Then he is off to Fort Benning in Georgia for three weeks of paratrooper training. Then Jeffrey McDonald was sent to Fort Bragg in North Carolina. He is assigned to the Green Berets as a surgeon for the Special Forces Group. One thing that will come into question later as we're going through the case itself, the investigation and the actual murders, is Jeffrey McDonald's army training. Green Berets are a special forces unit. They're able to handle very difficult situations. Most of the time, they're trained in martial arts and hand-to-hand combat and all kinds of different tactical, strategic fighting moves. That kind of fool. But we have Jeffrey McDonald here who is sent to the Green Berets as a surgeon. So he is not trained the same way that they would train these typical ground troops. Normally they have some kind of boot camp and some initial training, but specialty soldiers, they're going to go through a different training after the initial training. Correct. He receives this boot camp type training. He receives this paratrooper training, which is kind of above and beyond anyway. He never gets into the martial arts or any of that, 
because it's understood that it's very unlikely as a surgeon that he will actually see any real combat. Yeah, I mean, if you ever watched the show MASH, it wasn't like they were kung fu fighting. Right, only if you were absolutely forced into some very difficult situation. Yeah, but that's when you just yell, I don't know karate, but I know crazy. (laughs) That same year, shortly after arriving at Fort Bragg, Jeffrey and the McDonald family of four move into the apartment on base and officers housing. This is the 544 or 544 Castle Drive residence. This takes place in 1970. So the setup here is we have a family of four. The victims are going to be the wife and the two daughters. The only sole survivor will be the husband. And of course, the wife and daughters are killed either late on February 16th or very early on February 17th. The following will be Jeffrey McDonald's account of the events leading up to that and what took place during the attack brought on by these intruders. Starting with Saturday, February 14th, Lieutenant Ronald Harrison made a visit to the McDonald residence. This would be in the evening hours. During the visit, Harrison and McDonald discussed the Sharon Tate murder. Yeah, that's from the Charles Manson case. The conversation comes about because Harrison spotted an issue of Esquire magazine sitting on the coffee table. On the cover of the magazine was, quote, Lee Marvin is afraid evil lurks in California. Harrison picked up the magazine, looked at it, and McDonald basically told him the issue was a must read. Harrison flipped through the magazine while McDonald told him about the articles inside. McDonald said that there were articles about the Sharon Tate murder and a cult in California. Yeah, that'd be the Charles Manson cult. The two had a five-minute conversation that mostly included joking, but also discussed in a serious manner the witch, the sorcerer, the black swan, and the acid goddess. These are all from articles in this particular magazine. They both agreed it was unbelievable what was happening in California. They went on to discuss drugs and people who take drugs. McDonald says, from what I've read and medically speaking, that marijuana isn't so bad, but the harder stuff he had some serious concerns with. So we're setting it up in this manner because this is an important part of his account. Because what happened was just the year before was the Sharon Tate and Mr. and Mrs. LaBianca murders. Right. Charles Manson and Manson's family killing people, invading homes in California. And this now we're in early 1970. The trials hadn't even started for Manson and his followers yet. This is big, big news. And of course, this is something that McDonald's discussing with his friend. The conversation piece was the magazine itself. But this is also a topic of discussion in homes around America at the time, because what went down in California was just so heinous and so unbelievable. Yeah, it's one of the big bang moments. It's like everybody knows where they were at when Kennedy was shot. Everybody remembers hearing about the Manson murders. Everybody knows where they're at on 9-11. It's one of the big bang moments. This will lead us to Sunday the 15th. On Sunday, February 15th, McDonald went to work at the hospital in Hamlet, North Carolina. 
He reports nothing unusual happening that day. He says that he treated a small number of patients and worked all day long. Now, to be clear, Captain, this is a 24-hour shift that he worked from Sunday at 6 a.m. to Monday at 6 a.m. Probably too long for a surgeon to be working. (laughs) Steady the hands, my friend. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to be the guy that goes into surgery on the 22nd hour. Right. I don't think he's performing surgeries. I don't know exactly what he's doing. He is a Uh, surgeon. What else is he supposed to be doing? Shining shoes? Well, he says that he took two naps while on shift and says that he slept for approximately five and a half hours total that day. Hmm. And he went on to say that that would be about what he would sleep on a normal night at home. On Monday, February 16th. And I want everybody to pay really, really close attention to everything that is said here. Take some notes if you're able to. After but only if you're driving. His shift, McDonald went back to his home at the base and had breakfast with Colette and the kids. It sounds like he may have taken a nap or slept at some point during the daytime on that Monday. At 4.45 p.m., McDonald and his two daughters leave the house to go see the horse that he bought for the family for Christmas. Mm -hmm. The pasture is about five miles from their house. What's the horse's name? You know what? I, I did know this at one point. I didn't put it in my whole story. (laughs) We'll call him rusty. I think, I think you can actually easily find the horse's name, but I, I can't recall what it is at this point at 5 PM. McDonald's daughters ride and feed the horse, and then they return to the home, arriving around 5.30 to 5.40 p.m. The McDonald family of four, they sit down to dinner together for a short dinner. At 6.10 p.m., his wife, Colette, left the house for an evening class at the University of North Carolina. This was an extension school that was located on the military base. Colette was taking child psychology courses at that time. We should point out some some things here about the family and Colette and Jeffrey before we move on too far. Jeffrey McDonald, he, he's a doctor, he's a surgeon, but he's in I mean, he's incredibly smart. Of course, doctors and surgeons are incredibly smart anyway, but we're talking about schooling at Princeton and Northwestern University where he graduated near the top of his class. Right. Now, people that knew these individuals very well would tell you that not only was Jeffrey McDonald incredibly intelligent, but Colette might have been smarter than than Jeffrey. And probably her, so. Her life is a little bit on hold because she's staying at home and raising their two children. But we see here when he's at home, when he's able to be home between these long shifts, she's able to go and continue her education. McDonald said that after Colette left, that he cleaned up dinner and played with the kids for a while. His daughter, Kristen, went to bed between 7 and 7.30 p.m. These are very young children. Kimberly stayed up watching TV. McDonald said he fell asleep on the living room floor, which was pretty common. Kimberly woke him up around 8 p.m., and he knows this to be accurate as far as the time goes because he says that Kimberly and him always watched a show called Laugh-In together. It was Kimberly's favorite TV show. So she woke him up so they could watch the TV show together at 8 p.m. And then after the show, he says he put Kimberly to bed in her bedroom 
at 9 p.m. McDonald returned to the living room to watch the Bob Hope special that was on that night. Right. At 9.40 p.m., Colette returned home, and at that time, she changed into her PJs, joined McDonald in the living room where they watched TV together. McDonald would say that because they had two children, because he worked so much, because Colette is continuing her education, they had very little time to spend just one-on-one, the two of them. So it was very common that late night they would spend an hour or two together either watching TV, listening to records or reading, or just talking about their day. That was kind of their time once the kids were put to bed and once all the busyness, hustle and bustle of the day-to-day life was done. Mm -hmm. He says that Colette went to bed around midnight. McDonald says he may have dozed off, but spent some time reading a book and watching Johnny Carson at the same time. Here's Johnny. At 1 a.m., he shut off the TV and continued reading his book. At 1.30 a.m., Jeffrey McDonald says he went to bed and he noticed that dishes were not done. So he decided, all right, I'm not going to bed just yet. I'm going to take care of these dishes. So he washes the dishes and straightens up the kitchen a little bit. He says this is to you know, earn some points with his wife. Yeah. Some brownie points. Yeah. You don't, you don't want to upset mom or the wife by not cleaning up the dinner that he probably promised to clean up. McDonald says that sometime during the last hour that he was up that night, that Christie got out of bed and went into the master bedroom and fell asleep next to Colette, her mother. So when he goes in to go to bed, he found her in the bed on his side of the bed. Right. She had wet the bed, and there was a large wet spot on his half of the bed. Great. Yeah. Long day. Just did the dishes. Go. You, you almost fell asleep on the couch, but now it's time to go to bed. One, you see your daughter there, so you're like, oh, great. I got to move her. Oh, no. She peed. She peed the bed. And she's two, so this is fairly common that she would get up sometime in the middle of the night and creep in and go sleep with mom and dad in their bed. It's still one of those moments where you're like, can I freaking just win one? Right. Let me win one today. Could have slept easier at the hospital. Yeah. So he says he picked up Christy, carried her back to her bedroom, placed her in her bed. Then he gives her a bottle. Now he decides rather than he's not going to go sleep in the wet spot. Nobody wants to sleep in the wet spot, regardless of how it got wet. So he decides, you know what, rather than waking up my wife, changing the sheets, you know, fixing everything up, she's fine. She's sleeping. Her half of the bed is is fine. He decides it will be easier if I just go and sleep on the couch for the night. Go sleep on the couch in the living room. Wake up, take care of it in the morning, right? Right. He says at that time, when he goes to bed, when he goes to go to sleep on the couch, he remembers specifically that the only lights on in the house were a kitchen ceiling light and the main bathroom light. McDonald says he fell asleep within a matter of three to four minutes. He says he never had trouble falling asleep. Some of us do. He never had any trouble falling asleep. It seems like very likely because he's tired from doing so much all of the time. Yeah. McDonald says that the next thing that he is aware of He's awakened by a scream 
coming from his wife. He hears his wife screaming. He's in the living room, and he says the living room, when he wakes up to hearing the screaming, it's mainly darkness in that room. He describes this as a very loud scream, and he said it was definitely Colette's voice. He says, quote, things all happened at once. He says, I was sitting up. I was hearing this very piercing scream. Then she said, quote, meaning Colette, quote, help Jeff. Why are they doing this to me? There were people at the foot of my couch, he says, in the living room. These people are three males. And he says, then I saw a female behind the three males. So I saw a total of four people. So four people is all that he ever says that he saw during this entire event. Mm-hmm. He says, I heard Kimberly screaming at the same time, and I started to get up and said either what's going on or what the hell's going on or what's going on here. Okay, so let's paint this picture a little bit better. Those are his words. I'm going to give you the colonel's words. Picture this. He says he wakes up in near darkness. He's hearing his wife scream. Jeff, why are they doing this to me? Mm-hmm. Notices three males standing at the foot of his couch. He's in the living room. Colette's in the bedroom, master bedroom. He notices a woman standing behind the three males. And then he's hearing his daughter scream. Now at the same, t- he says at the same time. Mm-hmm. So I'm going, all right, same time. Either all three of these things are happening at the same time. Wife screams, notices the people, daughter screams, or his words would indicate that the he hears his daughter screaming at the same time as some other event, meaning either his wife screaming or at the same time that he notices these people in the living room with him. He says what's going on, what the hell's going on. He doesn't remember exactly what he says to these people when he sees them. Now, Jeffrey says there were two men at the foot of the couch, and the third man was between the couch and the coffee table. They were all facing him. He says he saw a woman behind the two men at the foot of the couch. He goes on to say, all I really saw was that it appeared to be a girl with long blonde hair and a big floppy hat. I had the impression that she was holding, quote, like a candle in her hands. He says this because mainly there was sort of a light on her face. He does go on to say that it could have been a flashlight. He says there was a light coming from the kitchen and the hallway. There is enough light to see the figures of these people, the silhouette of these people, but not so much enough to see details. Of these people. Well, to be clear, the McDonald's house, it, it's connected to other houses, correct? Yes, it's it's an apartment on base. So it's on base officer housing. And yes, they share walls with other officers and their families. And it's pretty large. I, I'd almost say that it's almost seems like houses that are connected as opposed to what we would assume as apartments connected. It really seems like a, a pretty large space. The building itself? No, I'm saying the individual units that are connected. You can go online and see diagrams that people have made, 3D diagrams, uh, if you want to dive in just to the the structure and the layout of the house. Yeah, I don't know the square footage of 
of the apartment itself, but it's kind of. That's what I'm looking for now. The, the easy way to describe it would be long. It's rectangular. And from my understanding, Captain, the living room that he's in and the, if you want to call it the upstairs level or the bedrooms, is really only separated by a step or two. If this diagram is correct, it looks like the front of the house is roughly 52 feet and the depth of the house is roughly, I'd say, 28 to 30 feet. Okay. He goes on to tell us that two of the three men were white and one of the males was black. He says that the black man was wearing an army fatigue jacket. He says that he started approaching me. He raised something over his head and swung it down towards me. I started to fall back and I put my arm up to fend it off. This attack he's trying to fend off. Then he hit me on the forehead, at which time I literally saw stars. I was knocked backwards onto the couch. I was becoming more confused. I struggled back to a sitting position, and he raised the club up again and started swinging it down. I sort of fended it off. He says, I grabbed his arm and slid down onto the club. So I was holding the club with my hands. At this time, I saw sergeant stripes on his sleeve. So he's saying one of the attackers, the black male, is wearing an army fatigue jacket, and it's this man who is striking him with something in the forehead. And during the scuffle with this guy, he notices sergeant stripes on the army fatigue jacket. While this was occurring, he says that the girl, he's referring to this, this is a grown woman, but he keeps saying girl. While this was occurring, the girl was saying, quote, acid is groovy and kill the pigs. Someone said once or twice, hit him again. It may have been the girl that said this. Jeffrey McDonald says, I'm not sure. Yeah, well, Jeffrey's given us a lot of details, but it seems like he's also questioning the details as he's giving them He goes on to say, I was holding on to the club, at which time the struggle became more confusing. I'm guessing this is because he's been struck in the head with this club. But then I developed a terrific pain in my chest, my right chest. I assumed I was being punched. I thought I had been punched in the chest really, really hard. Maybe the wind was knocked out of me. I let go of the club and I began grappling with the other two men. At this time, my shirt. So McDonald is wearing his pajamas. He's wearing pajama uh, pants and a button-up long-sleeve pajama top. He says, at this time, my shirt was either pulled over my head or it was ripped. I have the feeling it was ripped because I don't remember something being pulled over my head. In any case, my shirt ended up wrapped around my forearms and partially around my hand. I'm still struggling with these guys. I had the impression that one of the white guys that I was struggling with was wearing gloves. I hit one of the men, not sure who, in the face. In the face? I grabbed one of the men and I was holding onto his hand. I looked and I saw a blade in his hand and I realized at this point I was being stabbed. I was not being punched. I never really got on my feet again. The long sleeve pajama top was still on my arms. The, so it was 
he says in my way. So I, he was using it as like a buffer, right? They're trying to strike him or stab him or hit him with things. And he's got this pajama top that's now wrapped around his forearms and hand. And he's kind of using it as almost a shield. He goes on to say, at this point, I was aware of being hit on the left shoulder and head. And I started falling. I sort of fell towards the stairs. At the end of the couch is the hallway. It comes out right there, and the hallway is two stairs up from the living room. I just sort of fell that way, and then I saw right in front of me a knee in the top of a boot. I was under the impression that it was a female that I was looking at. I saw a knee in the top of a boot, and I had the impression of the boot being wet. That is the last thing I saw before I woke up. Do you want to set your child up for success? Of course you do. That's why you need to check out IXL Learning today. IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids covering math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed to help them really understand and master topics in a fun way. It's powered by advanced algorithms. IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. There's one site for all kids in your home pre-K to 12th grade. Kids could use it at home on their computer or on an app on your phone or a tablet. No more grading those worksheets. IXL grades everything for you. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. I love recommending IXL learning. Kids can learn at home or on the go. And all my friends and family that are using it absolutely love it because it's so easy to set up and so easy to use. And even the kids that I've recommended it to their parents have told me, hey, Captain, thank you. I was having problems in math and my parents couldn't help me, but IXL could. Do you want to get your kids back on track or do you just want to get your kids ahead? Do so with IXL Learning. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And True Crime Garage listeners get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com slash garage. Visit IXL.com slash garage to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Check out IXL.com slash garage today. The best part of spring cleaning takeaway is the post-clean clarity you get. It's kind of like when you find out that you've been paying a fortune for wireless. When Mint Mobile has phone plans for $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. It's time to switch to Mint Mobile. All plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. Use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all of your existing contacts. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. Save a lot of money with Mint Mobile. Get their great mobile wireless service delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. That's premium service 
at a great price. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash TCG. That's mintmobile.com slash TCG. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash TCG. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from every week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. I am new to Factor, and I have been loving every minute of it. I have a problem, and it's called lunch. Some days I need a pack of lunch, and some days I work from home. Whether I'm at home or whether I'm on the go, Factor is fueling my lunch from now on. Head to factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 and use code truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month. That's code truecrimegarage50 at factormeals.com slash truecrimegarage50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Right, we're back. Cheers, mates. Cheers to you, Colonel. Hallelujah to the people in the back. Cheers to all you snow-covered critters out there. Let's continue on, Captain, with Jeffrey McDonald's account of what went down that night. Okay, when we left off, he says that he's been knocked out, basically. You know, they've, he's been attacked, and then this is the last thing I remember was seeing a wet boot, who he believed belonged to the woman, that he spotted in the living room before he blacks out or goes unconscious. Yeah, at this point, he thinks he was hit in the head multiple times by multiple individuals and also possibly stabbed. He goes on to say that the first recollection that he had when he woke up was that I was on my stomach on the hallway floor and my arms were still wrapped in this pajama top. My teeth were chattering and I thought I was going into shock. I got up at which time I was dizzy and confused. I had a pain in my chest and it was hard to breathe. So I went down to our master bedroom. I probably turned on the lights. My wife was lying off of the bed and on the floor. Her feet were toward the hallway. Her head was toward the bed. 
She was sort of next to the bed, partially leaning against the green easy chair that is next to the bed. She didn't look good at all. She looked very bad. There was a knife sticking out of her chest. And as I was coming into the room, I started taking off this top. He's referring to his pajama shirt. Right. So my hands were free. And when I saw the knife, I pulled it out of her chest and sort of tossed the knife. Well, pulling a knife from somebody's chest might be a very awkward or maybe uncommon thing, I think, for a normal victim. But we do know that he's a surgeon, so maybe that is the reason why he did so. He goes on to say that I then tried to give her, and this is his words, artificial breathing simulation. So maybe that's very doctor speak. I don't know. but CPR. Well, not CPR. He's simply giving her mouth-to-mouth resuscitation at that time. Mm -hmm. But he says that the air bubbles, the air bubbles were coming out of her chest and neck when he's trying to breathe for her. Hmm. Think about that when you're eating your lunch. Yeah, he says that it's then that he realized that he, the fact, the sad fact that he would not be able to revive her. He said that there was no way that she could sustain her own breathing. He's a surgeon, so he's going to act a little differently, I think, than most people. He says he then stopped doing the mouth to mouth, and he says, I didn't know what to do. So I covered her chest with my pajama top under the theory that if she's not dead, she's at least in deep shock and you go over and elevate their legs and lie them flat. He says, I don't know if it was now or later that I checked her pulse, but at this point I realized that I had heard Kimberly yelling also. So what I think he means here, Captain is that he remembered hearing Kimberly yelling before he was knocked out. Not that she's yelling at this exact moment. Yeah, because he reported hearing his wife yell and also possibly one of his children yell. Now he's remembering that. So he says, I got up again, and it was getting harder for him to breathe at this time. He says, I went down the hallway into Kimberly's room. Kimberly was in her bed on the right side of the bed. I saw what I thought were stab wounds. I didn't notice any other wound. I just saw a lot of blood. I don't know if it was now or later. I tried to give artificial respiration. I think I checked her pulse. I turned around, went out of the bedroom, and into the other bedroom. This would be the other little girl's bedroom. I found Christy lying in her bed. She had a lot of blood on her. I checked her pulse and remembered trying to breathe and give her mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. And the same thing happened that happened with this. Okay, he's giving this these statements in an interview. And this is his recollection, not with police, right? This is an interview that's not being conducted by police. So he's starting to say, I believe that, that, the same thing happened when he gave mouth to mouth to his wife and seeing the air bubbles coming from the chest and the neck. Right. I'm kind of guessing here because he says the same thing happened that happened with, and then the notes state that the interview stopped for about 10 minutes because they needed Jeffrey McDonald to, you know, regain his composure to carry on with the actual interview. We don't get him to finish that sentence. 
When the interview picks up, he says, I ran into the hallway and I just stood there not knowing what to do. I noticed blood on my hand, so I went to the master bathroom, rinsed my hands off, and dried my hands off with some toilet paper or something and dropped it either on the toilet or on to the floor. I remember coming back into the master bedroom, so I was back to Colette, his wife. I checked her carotid pulse. I took away my pajama top and looked at her chest wounds again, and at this time, I kind of knew. All of this probably occurred in just a matter of a few minutes. It was getting very hard for me to breathe. My head was really hurting, and I was getting dizzy, and I just didn't know what to do. There is a phone in the bedroom, so I went over to the phone, picked up the phone, and I dialed zero. The operator came on and I said something to the effect like, this is Captain McDonald or Dr. McDonald. I'm at 544 Castle Drive and there has been some people stabbed and we need ambulances, doctors, and MPs. And she said, referring to the operator, is it on post or off post? Meaning where he's calling from. And Dr. McDonald says, I said, what the hell are you talking about? She repeated, is this on post or off post? Dr. McDonald said, for Christ's sake, what difference does that make? She said, well, if it's on post, it's an MP matter, military police matter. I said, it is on post. She said, well, you have to contact the military police. And with that, he says, I just laid down the phone or dropped the phone. He says, I went back to Kimberly and I went back to Christy, checked them for pulses and possibly gave them mouth-to-mouth again. That part's a little confusing to me, Captain, because it seems to me like he's already decided there's nothing more he could do for at least two of these three victims. I don't want to bring up too many things that I find suspicious because that's something that we're going to be going over, but the fact that he, he does all these things and checks on so many people before he tries to call for help is definitely something that I think needs to be noted. He goes on to say that he didn't get any pulses, and again, he says he finds himself standing in the hallway saying to himself, what's going to happen? He says that it, he then went to the kitchen. There's, there's another phone in the kitchen area. He says, I went to the kitchen phone through the dining room, picked up the phone, and the operator was already on the line. She had never broken the connection. He says... I said this is Captain McDonald at 544 Castle Drive. Just a minute, I'll connect you to the MPs there. Apparently, that's what she's saying to him. Mm -hmm. He says that he heard some dial tones and clicks, and then a military police officer came on the line and said, can I help you? McDonald says, I said people have been stabbed, and I asked repeatedly for an MP for doctors and ambulances. I told them I'm at 544 Castle Drive. He said they're on their way. McDonald says again he dropped the phone. At this time, he says, I'm all covered in blood from the kids and from Colette. I rinsed off in the sink. I started out of the kitchen, and that's really the last thing I remember. The next thing I remember, so he's blacking out again, The next thing I remember, I was being given mouth-to-mouth by an MP officer. When I was awakened, I was right next to my wife on the floor in the master bedroom. 
I remember there's people all around me and all I could see was the MP shiny helmets. I saw this circle of people and they were all talking, yelling and screaming, put that down. Don't touch her. They put me on a stretcher. I kept asking about my kids. Everyone kept telling me everyone's okay. They took me to a hospital where they were treating me. He said everyone during the treatment process kept telling him to calm down, that everyone's okay. But finally, a doctor came in to check on him. And he says it was a doctor that he knew and had worked with at one point. And he said, I kept asking him over and over, how are they? He said, no one's told you. I said, no. He said, they're all dead. He paused and said, I'm sorry to tell you. Yeah. McDonald says, I was crying for a while. Then the doctor came back in and asked what he could do. And McDonald said, call my mother and call my in-laws and have them come right away. But don't tell them what happened. But question for you, because the, the, the initial 911 call, talking to the operator, putting the phone down, going to the hallway, coming back, talking to the operator, putting the phone down again. Does that remind you of any case that we've covered? Hmm. It I, reminds me a lot of the, the Scott Peterson, the, the staircase murders. That's right. Where the 911 call, where it seems like he's panicking, but then he's backing away from the call and then getting back on the call. Oddly uh, enough, another military man as well. Yeah. Now, according to just general knowledge, this is all agreed upon by all parties involved on February 17th at three forty-two AM, you know, because we do not have McDonald filling us in with any exact times here when all of this is taking place. Right. So at three forty-two AM, Dispatchers at Fort Bragg were notified by a chief operator of the Carolina Telephone Company regarding a call for help that they received. The operator patched the call through to Fort Bragg, where Jeffrey McDonald reported that, quote, some people had been stabbed at his residence and that he needed MPs and medics and ambulances when the MP and medics arrived. McDonald was found on the master bedroom floor lying partially on his stomach with one of his arms across Colette's upper body. McDonald tells MPs and medics that he and his family were attacked by four hippies. And we'll circle back to that real quickly. McDonald is then transferred to Cape fear hospital for treatment. Colette, Kimberly and Kristen are all pronounced dead. They are transferred to the morgue at Cape fear hospital. It's interesting how many cases are similar but this one is kind of an amalgamation of multiple cases. Of one, the Chris Watts case, the the Scott Peterson case, and and then you mix in the Sam Shepard case, and now you have the Jeffrey McDonald case. So some things real quick that I want to touch on in his account that might clear some things up. It might just muddy the waters even more. I don't know. But as the captain said, we're going to go through this in a very compartmentalized way, but I wanted to touch on some of these things before we simply forget to get to them. So he says the very basic general description that's in the papers and put out to everybody immediately is that this Jeffrey McDonald, this respected doctor, this respected Green Beret member of the army, 
he says that we are attacked by four hippies. There's some pretty major dispute going on if that was in fact what he said, because people, this case is one of the most debated cases I think to, to, to date. I mean, it's up there with any of the other ones that you hear people that, that start off having a very intelligent discussion that heightens to yelling and screaming matches because people are so decided one way or the other. Did Jeffrey McDonald kill his family or did this group of four hippies kill his family? Like he says, yeah, some people would say it's so debatable that to debate it itself, you'd have to be a master debater. (laughs) Well, one of the very first things that comes into question is he gives a, a description of the attackers and people are saying, well, he's calling them hippies, yet one of them had on an army fatigue jacket to which he says he noticed sergeant stripes. Yeah, but the, look, we've all seen Forrest Gump, right? When he goes to the Capitol and he and they have the protesters, they have the hippies protesting Vietnam and he gets mixed up in them. There's a lot of so-called, you know, quote unquote hippies. And what were they wearing? They were wearing army fatigues. It was very fashionable in the mid-60s to to mid-70s. Well, and I think the description of hippie sometimes can be open to interpretation a little bit. Yeah, or go go see a bunch of footage of John Lennon performing, and he's constantly wearing what? Army fatigues. And he's He was the definition, the, the biggest icon of the hippie movement. Well, and what McDonald would later say is, I never said the word hippies. I never said it was four hippies. I simply described the four people that I saw. Right. And somebody from the Army or somebody from the newspaper changed it to a very general description of four hippies. Now, I can kind of believe that because we've been doing this long enough, Captain. I've seen things get skewed in the news and in the papers because it sells copies. We've talked about it many times. It gets clicks on the Internet. Obviously, that's not a concern back in 1970, but it also gets people talking and it gets people tuning into the news. What would have been on everyone's minds is what we just talked about earlier, the Manson family. Yeah, Sharon Tate. Yeah, the crazy hippies that that broke into homes and and murdered everybody inside and and wrote things on the walls. Yeah, and I I bet if you look back at whatever articles were written about the Manson family and these quote-unquote so-called hippies, if that was lingo that was used in those reports, that's why that lingo was used in this case. Now, very interestingly, though, we have a similar situation here at the McDonald home. After the attack, so all four of the people are attacked inside the home. Three of them are left dead. And on the wall in the bedroom, I apologize, not on the wall. It was on the headboard to the the bed in the master bedroom. Somebody wrote the word pig in blood. Right, which is. With Colette's blood, we would later figure out. Yeah, which is something that was rumored. I don't think it was confirmed in the, the Manson murders. But supposedly there was the words pig written in blood in those murders as well. Well, yeah, and that that definitely happened in both of those. Well, I'm just saying at, at, at the time of this murder, since the trial didn't happen, mm-hmm. I just wonder if that was actually confirmed. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, and this, we should be clear here. We already pointed out that this account that he's given is 
an account that he is given to an, a person conducting an interview, a, a reporter. This is not his words to the MPs mm-hmm. when he's interviewed right after the attack. Although he would tell us that this is the same thing that he told the military police. Right. I've seen that version. It is very similar. But the things that, that are a little wonky, again, the word hippies, he says he never used the word hippies. Mm-hmm. And second, it's very quickly pointed out to McDonald during the investigation, the, the triple homicide investigation, that are you sure that this woman was holding a candle? Mm-hmm. And in his initial statement, he does say candle. I believe she was holding a candle because I saw some kind of flickering, glowing light on her face. They say, you know, we didn't find any evidence of, of wax, of candle wax in the living room. Right. But just because she's holding a candle doesn't mean that they're going to find wax on the floor. Well, and this is what's interesting. He may have been altering his statement to play along with what they were finding or not finding at the scene because in this interview he's saying it may have been a flashlight i don't know i didn't see a candle i didn't see a flashlight i simply saw the light shining up on her face yes and it could be multiple things it could be a a candle it could be a flashlight it could be a knife that was somehow reflecting light onto her face as said mcdonald's mother is called and his in-laws are called they obviously rush to Fort Bragg. And unfortunately there's going to be funeral services held for three on February 21st. A little background story though, to talk about Freddie and Mildred Kassab. So this is his in-laws, right? Colette's father died when she was very young and Freddie Kassab married her mother when Colette was still pretty young. And remember we said that these two had a relationship in high school. They were friends, boyfriend, girlfriend, that sort of thing, on and off. The Kassabs, Freddie and Mildred, knew Jeffrey well, well before the two ever got married. And this Freddie Kassab, I look him up sometime, or if you read up, want to read further on this case, you'll find the same thing. I believe you'll find the same thing that I thought. This guy, is he's a very likable guy. But he's also very personable. He seems to be very personable with everybody. And what I mean is that he treated Mildred's daughters and, and her children as if they were his own. And he, he raised They loved him dearly. And Freddie Kassab loved Jeffrey McDonald dearly. And immediately after this, this was a weird case because they're going to go and look for these, whatever you want to call them four hippies. The MPs are, they're not going to find anybody. They don't find anybody matching that description. They don't arrest anybody matching that description. And after days and days, people go from feeling bad for Jeffrey McDonald to deciding, well, maybe he is lying. Maybe he's the one that is responsible for the murder of his family. And as Freddie Kassab, his father-in-law, I think this is a rare thing. I don't think we've seen this in a lot of cases, Captain. Right. Freddie Kassab goes to bat for Jeffrey McDonald. 100% stands by this guy. He says, you know, you, you'd have to be crazy to think that Jeffrey McDonald would kill his family. He was right. very vocal about it, and he stood in front of the media and the newspapers and told all of them that they are crazy 
for claiming that Jeffrey McDonald would kill his family. Right, because normally what happens? Oh, well, they had some fights. They had some money problems. Uh, my my son-in-law, he was a little bit of a hothead, right? That's normally what you hear, mm-hmm. that, that it's a possibility. Or we couldn't believe it at all with the other Scott Peterson case, right? Mm-hmm. Couldn't believe it at all, but then more things that are uncovered you start going, well, maybe this is a possibility. Yes, maybe it is a possibility. And then you have to go, well, if he did do it, what is the motive for it? There's That is another question mark, another big question mark in this case. Did he have a motive to kill his family? Some say that it was because he was angered that the child wet his bed and that it started as a small argument that escalated greatly. Again, this... Uh, you know, the more and more, and I know that you have been uh, researching cases years before I ever did. But again, this guy, you're going to tell me that this guy, his daughter probably wet the bed multiple times. But he went to go to bed and, and she wet the bed and he, he decided to then kill everybody. And then he's going to make up this story about these intruders and. It's it's very similar to John Benet Ramsey. Oh, John Benet Ramsey wet the bed, and so the mother decided, well, she has to die. And Colette, we should point out, was pregnant with what would have been the third child for the McDonald family. And did they know what the sex was? I believe this time it was going to be a boy. Mm. So she was well into her pregnancy, and look, McDonald had affairs he went outside of his marriage not once not twice probably i i don't want to put a number on it five thousand million (laughs) i'm not going to put a number on it i i don't know for certain but i know that it was as kajillion of a number according to all the reports and everything that i've read over the years that it was multiple times but hold on let's get this out of the way so he's a scumbag cheater right well, but and it was surgeon. it was known to some people that that Colette and Jeffrey had argued and fought about this type of cheating behavior before. That it right. was kind of a long, ongoing argument. So, so he's a cheater. We know that. Was, <laughs> it's like the common thread. The guy's a cheater, and then he murders his wife, mm-hmm. and sometimes he murders his family. But is there any financial troubles? I mean, he they're living on Fort Bragg and he's a surgeon. So he probably makes decent money as a green beret surgeon. I don't think that we have any kind of money issues. I mean, they, he purchased a horse for his daughters for Christmas rusty just months before this. And I think that there's not money issues because look one, given the time period, 1970 people spent their money and lived a little quite a bit differently actually back then than they do today. But Take that a step further. They're living in officer housing. He is working in his profession that will pay him handsomely at some point being a surgeon. They're just a young family. You know, they're just a young family with two little kids and they're, they're coming up through the world. They're building their family. They're building their, their life. And, you know, so if, if money was an issue, I don't think it would be a long-term issue. Right. I also wonder if his father-in-law knew about his infidelity. I believe that he did, and I say that because it's obvious to me that Colette had expressed 
the difficulties and the, the trouble with her marriage to her mother. And given Freddie Kassab's personality, him being so personable and so loving and trusting to his wife and, and her children, this is not a guy that it strikes me that you keep stuff from this guy. When he walks into a room, it's very obvious he's in charge of the whole room. He, he takes over a room in that manner, but he's also, like I said, extremely personable and loyal to the people around him. This all took place, as said, Captain, on February 16th and 17th, 1970. It wouldn't be until July of 1970 when Jeffrey McDonald is going to have to go to trial for the murders of his Family and I and I should clear that up and clean that up a bit because that's not exactly what's happening here. It's it's what the army calls an Article Thirty Two hearing. To the civilians out there, I would liken this to like kind of like a grand jury hearing right. where we're going to decide if there's enough evidence here to charge this guy and bring him to court. But because it took place at Fort Bragg on military property. It's the military's jurisdiction. Yeah, so hold on a second. So what we have is a guy that claims that these intruders killed his family, but it doesn't seem like we have a lot of evidence that there was even intruders in the house. So as far as the investigation goes, that's kind of why they're forced into this, you know, hey, we we don't have much evidence that there was even other individuals there. So now we need to look at the most likely suspect in in a crime like this, the husband. And then from that, they're trying to determine if there's enough evidence against him to take him to trial. The short of it, Captain, regarding this Article 32 hearing that's conducted by the military, they decide that there's really not enough evidence to go forward and try Jeffrey McDonald for the murders of his family. In fact, they dismiss the case with the suggestion that the MPs or maybe even civilian police and law enforcement agencies look for these four people that McDonald says broke into the apartment and murdered the family. I mean, cases especially that are this horrifying you want to get him right because if you don't get it right you can't ever charge him again and i think this is one of those cases where we can spend the time doing the storytelling and telling you what happened and how it played out and this thing was a monster of a story to tell because it's a story that that spans decades and decades right. of action in and outside of the courtroom and we'll get back to the storytelling portion a bit but what I think is really key here in this case is that we look at what we know. We look at the facts. We examine it here in the garage and see what our opinions are, as well as the listeners out there, to figure out if Jeffrey McDonald is, in fact, guilty of these murders. So let's start with the autopsies. So the following is a list of wounds that were inflicted upon the McDonald family. And we'll go through these victim by victim, starting with Colette McDonald. Colette sustained several blunt trauma injuries to her head and arms. 
She was struck at least six times in the head with a blunt object, resulting in lacerations to her right temple, left temple, forehead, and on top of her head. All of these lacerations were deep enough to expose bone. She also received two blows under her chin, resulting in extensive bruising to the left front chin area and the right front chin area. Mm -hmm. There was a small fracture in the midline portion of Colette's skull. The blunt trauma injuries to Colette's arms were defensive type wounds. You see that very often. So you're seeing obvious signs of she was attacked with a club or something of that nature struck in her head area. And she's trying to block these blows during this scuffle using her hands and forearms. Right. And what's interesting here is these injuries, the blunt force trauma to her head would be consistent with Jeffrey McDonald. What he says he was attacked with in the living room. Yeah, And to believe his story, you have to believe that, Somebody started to attack her and that she woke up. Then she defended herself. Colette's right wrist was fractured and the inner aspect of her upper arm bore an extensive bruise and a superficial abrasion. The fingers and hand of her right arm had extensive black and blue marks associated with abrasion. So this is not a, a, a one and done attack that happened very quickly. This is a fight. Right. That we're seeing here. We know this by Colette's injuries. Her left arm was also fractured in two places. So defending herself and being struck so hard that whatever she's being hit with is breaking bone as she's trying to fend it off. Does law enforcement have any clue to what this object would be? Yes. In fact, it's believed that all of the murder weapons, and I say all because there are different types of attacks here. Right. Different types of wounds indicating different murder weapons. All of them were found at the crime scene. Mm. So one was a, it's been referred to as a club. In some statements, McDonald says that he believed he was being hit with a bat. The best way to describe this quote unquote club is it's like a slat that you would use for a bed. And it's believed well, I shouldn't say believed. It seems to be damn near 100% proven that this wood, this wooden slat came from the master bed, from Jeffrey and his wife's bed in the master bedroom. Noted. Colette also had nine deep knife wounds to the front of her neck and seven deep knife wounds to her chest and 21 puncture wounds to her chest area. And But you are also saying that the, the knife was found at the scene of the crime as well. Yeah, so from my understanding here, Captain, what we have is we have uh, four murder weapons. One is that club that we just kind of described. Which you think is a slack that came from the master bed. That's, that's what investigators have stated. So do investigators also believe that the not only the slack comes from the house, but the knife comes from the house as well? So there were two knives and an ice pick. So those are your four murder weapons. Remember McDonald's account. He pulled the knife out of Colette's chest and just kind of tossed it or, or threw it down. So that goes what they find at the scene backs up his story for that portion. At least that one sentence, because they find a knife in the master bedroom on the floor. 
but they find the club, the ice pick, and a knife outside of the apartment. So they find them basically what you would call the backyard, even though this is a shared space. Right. They have a front door to the apartment and a back door to the apartment. When officers arrived at the scene, they found the front door locked and secured. They found the back door open. And it's right at a bush near this back door at the base of a bush where they find these murder weapons. Like, so if, if four people went into the house, killed this family, they must have got in through this back door. Maybe it was left unlocked. And when they left, they, of course, left the back door unlocked, left the door slightly ajar. And it would appear that they just tossed the weapons down as they were fleeing the apartment. But you're right, Captain. One very difficult thing that I have with this story is that McDonald says that he didn't recognize some of these items, and yet the MPs and the detectives would tell us that they believe, that they have reason to believe that all of these items came from the McDonald family, from, from their home. Right. You have to picture this. This story starts to become very incredible very fast. Did these four individuals happen to find an unlocked back door to the McDonald family home, enter with no weapons, go around the house collecting weapons of their own, and then using these weapons on the family and then toss them aside as they flee the crime scene? It could have been a mixture of both. Yeah, I mean, they could have found some of the items there. They could have brought maybe one or both of the knives with them. But the the police and law enforcement have said the knives belong to the McDonald family. Is that because they think they're a part of a set? The answer is I, I do not know what they're basing this off of. I don't have any reason to not believe this statement because this thing has gone to trial, you know, the Article 32 hearing, and then we have the actual trial of Jeffrey McDonald later. And it seems to be agreed upon that that these items came from the apartment. Kimberly McDonald was struck at least three times in the head with a blunt object. Kimberly's right cheek, right ear, and right mastoid area had overlapping black and blue marks and irregular abrasions. Her right eye was recessed, and she had a fractured nose, which was deviated to the right. Her left cheekbone was fractured and a piece of the cheekbone was protruding through the skin. Kimberly's skull showed multiple fractures and the dome portion of her skull was fractured through its entire thickness. It's, it's horrific to describe these things. And, and I, I hate having to say these words, but to put it simply, her head was bashed in. I mean, that's how brutally she was attacked and they found eight to 10 deep knife wounds on the right side of her neck. This is one of those weird cases, Captain. And again, I'll throw this warning out to you because you cannot unsee these things. You can find crime scene photographs, colored photographs online of the McDonald crime scene. Unfortunately, you can see these victims, pictures of these victims, how they were found that night when MPs responded to the call. Kristen McDonald sustained 12 knife wounds to her upper back, four wounds to her chest, and one to the neck. Two of the wounds to her back penetrated her heart, 
causing massive internal bleeding. 15 shallow puncture wounds were found in her chest, as well as multiple cuts on both of her hands. There was a through and through laceration of the skin involving the middle of the right ring finger. So this young girl is attacked. She stabbed as said, but again, we're seeing obvious signs of defensive wounds here. The, she has these wounds to her hands and fingers because she's putting them up, trying to prevent whatever attack is going on at that time. It, you know, the knife attack, the laceration that we just discussed about the middle of the right ring finger was deep enough to expose bone and the index finger of the right hand revealed a triangular flap of skin. So using the hands to try to fend off this attack. This brings us to Jeffrey McDonald, the man that says that he was sleeping on the couch and wakes up in the middle of the night and he's being attacked by three men in the living room. He says that he's attacked there. He says that he hears his wife screaming in the bedroom. He hears his daughter screaming in her bedroom. Mm -hmm. Now, his injuries are as such. McDonald sustained bruising over the left eye beneath the hairline, a stab wound of the upper left arm, a stab wound of the left bicep. He also received a laceration of the left index finger and a stab wound to the left abdomen in the form of an upside-down V. If you can picture that. Several small puncture-type wounds were present on the upper left chest. Remember, he said when he came to, he was confused. That would be from the strikes, the blows to the head. Mm -hmm. He said that it became increasingly more difficult to breathe. Well, this is going to be because he stabbed in the abdomen, in the chest area. And one of these stabs is powerful enough. It went between two of the ribs on the right side of his chest, which resulted in a collapsed right lung. So, of course, he's having difficulty breathing during this time. We went through all of that for me to say, and I don't want to speak for the captain here because, again, this is a case that everybody has their own opinion on it, and some of them are very strong. Some people are very strong in their opinions on this case, but we go through all of that for me to tell you this. What I see here and what I question here is I have three female victims, Colette and her two small young daughters. On these three individuals, I see overkill. Yeah. On Jeffrey McDonald, I see exactly what he described in his defense. It's exactly as he would describe it. Wounds I would expect to see on him, given his account of what happened. However, how does four people kill three individuals so brutally to the point that their their bodies, their clothing, their beds are covered in blood? Yeah. And the one major threat you have in this house. I was just going to say that. Is the green beret that's sleeping on the couch. And he does not have anywhere near the number of blows, stabs, blood on him. Yeah, because look, if, if you're one of the intruders, you don't know who this guy is. You're, you're on Fort Bragg and if you don't know who this guy is. All you can assume that is he's an officer of the military, right? Mm-hmm. And maybe if you know anything about Fort Bragg, maybe you know he 
is a part of the Green Berets. I don't know if they separate the people like that in the housing. Let's take that all out of account. Any intruder that goes into any house, who's their biggest threat to them? The two-year-old girl, the five-year-old girl, the mother, or the husband? Probably the husband. And you're going to have what he tells you, at least two males and a female in the same room to attack him with multiple weapons. And like you said, the other ones, their their bodies are mangled and he somehow is alive. Yeah, we know this from seeing these other attacks in other cases where people break into a home or, you know, home invasion type cases, BTK type cases. The first thing that they do is neutralize the threat. Jeffrey McDonald is the number one threat to these intruders. Maybe they neutralized him. It, it seems like they, if we believe McDonald, that they did a good job to neutralize him, let's say that. But then why the overkill on these other three individuals? Why didn't they finish the job on Jeffrey McDonald? Are we to believe McDonald that he just was able to fight them off better than his other family members were? Join us back here in the garage tomorrow. Same bat time, same bat channel. And until then, be good, be kind, and don't litter. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu accreditation.